Hi there, everybody. I, I know you're the real opera lovers because you're here tonight. I'm, so, I'm happy to see some of you in your costumes. I've got mine on. Whoever sent this, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Dear Maestro, welcome back where you belong. That means I'm not supposed to go away ever? No, that's okay. I, I did miss you. It's a long time since we've, we've been together and seen each other, but I'm thrilled to be back, and I'm very happy to be starting my season here uh, with this wonderful opera. Uh, don't be afraid of it. I know, contemporary music, terribly frightening. It's not uh, horrible. Far from that. It's a beautiful opera. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Uh, it is moving. It's a story. At least you know the outlines of the story, uh, if not the whole thing. And it is, uh, it is a spectacular production. So uh, I think you're going to love this. Here's my iPod. I don't see where to put it. Well, he's wrong. Okay, you've got a little time because I'm going I'm to chatter for a while as I usually do. Uh, now, Jake Hagee is our man. He is uh, he's one of the most successful American composers, and certainly of opera. Uh, this is a uh, this piece has been a success everywhere it's gone. It's been. He was born. He was born 1961, in West Palm Beach, Florida. He studied piano. Uh, he went to the American College in Paris and later to UCLA. He stopped playing the piano when he developed focal dystonia, and he could not play with his right hand. And so he took up. Uh, well, he moved on, and he decided to become a public relations. Uh, agent, and he worked at the San Francisco Opera of all places, and there he got his first commission, and that first commission, uh, which has been played everywhere, just about every place, Dead Man Walking, 2000, 15 years ago, he wrote his first opera, and he has been a success ever since. He has written 11 operas, uh, six of them he has written in collaboration with Gene Shear, the librettist, and amongst those, Moby Dick. Uh, that is... Jake had a premiere last night in Dallas, uh, which apparently was an enormous success. And he got on a plane. He didn't sleep. He told me that. He got on a plane. He's here tonight, and uh, you'll see him on stage at the end. And if you like it, you'll show it to him. It is a fabulous opera, and you're going to love it. Uh, Gene Shear is a marvelous, not just a writer and librettist, uh, he is also a composer in his own right. I collaborated with him on another world premiere uh, in New York, American Tragedy, uh, which of course is another reduction of a Theodore Dreiser, a very long Theodore Dreiser novel. Uh, this is also a very, very long novel. Uh, probably one of the most famous pieces, in, uh, pieces of American literature. Now here's a little trivia. Uh, Moby Dick's name is known to almost everybody. Uh, and it has been said to have been read by very few people from, from, from beginning to end. And uh, that makes me, I don't know if it's the 1%, we are always hearing about the 1%. I don't know if it's as low as that, but it might be. And of all of those people, um, I am one of them. I read, the, I read an abridged version in junior high school, and that's as much as, so I knew the story and all that, and I hope that by the time I finish conducting Norma here in the middle of December, I will have read Moby Dick in its, its, its entirety. Unfortunately, I, I have to work days and some nights and uh, most days of the week, so uh, I am having a fascinating time, however. It is marvelous. I'm not going to embarrass anybody by asking who are the people who 
read it are because you'll feel in a minority. So uh, that's, uh, that's one piece of trivia. The other second piece of trivia, which everybody seems to want to know, is um, there is a character named Starbuck in this, op in this, in this uh, novel and in this play. And it is told that the co-founder of the coffee that we all know by its eponymous name, Gordon Bowker, reportedly wanted the, na the name to be Pequod. Pequod is the name of the boat. And his uh, finally settled for Starbucks when his creative partner objected. He said, no one is going to drink a cup of Pequod. <laughs> Don't know why. Now, um, I'll give you the schematic of the uh, cast of characters. There is, there are, they are almost all men. And the one woman who is in the cast is also a boy. So this tradition of a, a young woman, uh, of a woman saying boys, of course, goes way, way, way back into the seven, 18th century. And of course, you know Carabino and the other various. Uh, uh, but this distinguishes it from Billy Budd, another Melville uh, uh, story that has been turned into an opera by Benjamin Britten. And that distinction uh, stops there, that this opera has one woman on the stage. Okay, And that is a very, she's a very, she, he is a very pivotal character because he's a young boy, and he, in a certain sense, represents the conscience of the, uh, of, the, of the ship. Now, I will give these to you in order of appearance so you can keep them. Now, there's not, there are many characters, but there are only very few you need to focus on. The first man is named Queequeg, and he is a native of Kokovoko, he's, he, the Polynesian Islands, and he is Harponier. he's a harponier. He is a character of, uh, who is essential for this plot because this, there is, amongst many other things, a struggle between good and evil. There almost always is in an opera, and this is no exception. Uh, he is clearly on the good side. He is probably spiritually the most developed personality on the stage. Uh, he is a humble man. He is, uh, he is a Muslim. You will hear him singing his prayer in Polynesian. It is an authentic Polynesian prayer at the beginning. So don't worry if you don't understand the first two minutes of the opera because he's singing in Polynesian or whatever that is. Okay? Um, so very positive character. There's another young positive character. His name is Greenhorn. Uh, and he is uh, he's a young American crewman on his first whaling ship. He is, um, Greenhorn was actually what they used to call rookies or newcomers on those ships, Greeny or Greenhorn. Greenhorn, of course, in the end, will turn out to be Melville. He will be the person who will tell this story. And I think you all know the first line, call me Ishmael, famous first line. That is, of course, uh, that is the voice of this young man who is going to tell the whole story. But you're not going to hear that at the beginning of the opera, because we're going to experience the story in live time. Then uh, there are various smaller roles. I don't want to trouble you with them. Third mates, uh, flask. The crew members of the Pequod are from many nationalities and ethnicities and ages. And one of the reasons for that is it creates a universe. It creates a sort of uh, the ship is, in a way, its own universe. It represents uh, the cosmos. Starbuck is important. Starbuck is a baritone. He's the first mate on the Pequod, a devout Quaker from Nantucket. Now, this, this devout Quaker is going, to be, uh, is going to set himself up against his superior, who is the Captain Ahab. We'll get to Captain Ahab in a minute. There's a, more characters. Stubb, uh, second mate of the Pequod. He's from Cape Cod. 
the third, third mate flask is from Martha's Vineyard. It's an Eastern story. Uh, Ahab, this is it. This is the protagonist, captain of the Pequod, an American from Nantucket. Now, Ahab is a monumental character, and I have to say it is, it is performed uh, by J. Hunter Morris, who whom you can see on the DVD, the existing DVD of this opera, is an absolutely charismatic personality on the stage. And he so deeply believes in this role. He becomes, the, he becomes Ahab. And it, it reminds me of those of you who may have seen John Vickers sing Peter Grimes. Uh, you could not at a certain point differentiate between who was Peter Grimes and who was John Vickers. It was so extraordinary. And, uh, and Jay is, uh, is along those lines. Now he's a complex character. He is um, narcissistic. He is driven by an obsession. His obsession is to find the whale who bit off his leg. And that's his, that is his all-consuming obsession, day and night. And he will drive this boat and these men's fates to any length to find that, what is he? He's a white whale. And that's how he's going to recognize him. He's a white whale. And if he finds that white whale, he's going to kill him. That is his purpose in life. And of course, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Don't tell if you don't. Yeah, of course, you know what's going to happen. The whale gets a Moby Dick wins. And it is a moral victory in many respects. Uh, more commentary on that later. But Starbuck, the baritone, who is, his, who is, is uh, right below him in rank, uh, challenges him on many, many moral levels. And yet, Starbuck admires Captain Ahab, as does most of the crew, because he is such, a spirit, he is such an inspiring leader. So Ahab is not all bad. Uh, but he is misled by, an, by a total obsession with himself and his own personal problem. Uh, there's various other sailors, and at the end, a character you will not see, he's Captain Gardner of another ship, you will hear his voice, he is looking for his lost son. And he calls out to Captain Ahab, he says, have you seen my son? And Captain Ahab says, have you seen the white whale? And Gardner repeats, I have lost my son. Have you seen him? He says, I have, have you seen the white whale? My son, the whale, the whale, I say to you. This gives you a measure of this man's, how this obsession has, become, has brought him to an inhumanity that is uncomprehensible. Now, Gardner will be very, very important at the end because his ship, of course, which did not attack Moby Dick, is not destroyed. Uh, and he sees one young man floating uh, who has not drowned, and that, of course, is Greenhorn. And he's going to call out to, he said, where is my son? And he said, who are you? And the boy says, I'm lost. And he said, he will, he will of course, save him. And he, the implication is his son, who, of course, has drowned. Will, the new son will become Greenhorn, and he will now be adopted by not a megalomaniac who, uh, who has driven that, that boat, but by a full human being who's, who has been humanized in addition by the loss of his son. He's going to, probably going to adopt him. And his last question is, what is your name? And he's going to say, call me Ishmael. So instead of being the first line, it's the last line. And the composer and librettist and the marvelous director, Leonard Folia, who have created this said it gave them the opportunity to to, to, to retell the story um, all in live time. In other words, they're not recounting. Now, of course, an enormous amount of, of information 
has been cut out. Melville actually uh, based a lot of this on his actual experience as a whaler. Or he was on a whale, he was on a, a, a ship. Uh, the Ahab seems to have no model in real life, uh, but his death seems to, it's a story that got around and he based it on that story. And the renowned monster was called Mochadik. He did exist, apparently. He was a white whale, maybe because he was so old. But he was renowned because, I've, uh, I, see if I can find, over 100 encounters with whalers in the decades between 1810 and 1830s. Whales lived for a very long time, and he defeated all of them. And so these stories collectively were known to, uh, to Melville, and that's, of course, part of the inspiration. The book is over 700 pages, and, of course, it is, um, it is much shortened. Uh, one, of the, one of the essential moments uh, is that when Pip, the young boy who is sung by a girl, is, um, falls overboard, the ship that Captain Ahab, Ahab refuses to stop the ship. Uh, and so Pip is going to be assumed to be drowned. Um, of course, Queequod, the, the, the um, Polynesian harponeer who is so good and who loves Pip, goes and rescues him through his own courage. And so Pip, Pip um, comes back on the ship. Pip has survived. But Pip has been so traumatized by the experience and also by the indifference of the ship that he, she, slash, uh, becomes almost insane. Now, Pip is, is formed by two characters in the original novel. One is uh, Pip, and the other is a sort of a seer, or a, uh, uh, a person who, you know, who, clairvoyant. And that clairvoyant has a spiritual function. So Pip is at the spiritual cent center of this opera, along with Queequod, because the, the, the men on the ship love Pip, and he's like a mascot. And when he is lost at sea, they are deeply affected. Um, they don't know yet that he's coming back, but they sing a chorus, lost in the, in the heart of the seas, rolling in white-capped waves, rising and falling, gasping, calling to shadows. This becomes the essential tragedy and the center of all of these men's lives on this boat, is they have, they have understood through what, they, what appears to be Pip's fate, what is their fate. And of course, they will all lose their lives at sea. Uh, this was a rough life, and uh, those people, those, sometimes those ships were out there for three or four years at a time. Uh, but everybody is at the mercy of those of that. The, um, where do we situate musically uh, Jake Hagee's opera? Um, I reject categories on their, uh, or their importance. So schools of composition, painting, schools of literature, instrumental are all interesting and important to note in that they are helpful. They are destructive and misleading when used as a dogma and or an orthodoxy. Uh, the same goes for words like contemporary versus classic, translated as relevant or not. Contemporary is relevant, classic is not. New is good, old is bad. Now, I can, I can carry on about this for hours, but one of the, the, for those critics who have not liked Jake Heggie's works, and Moby Dick included, because for them, uh, this is of course, because a little bit simplified, it's too old fashioned. There are melodies, you're gonna be able to sing some of them when you leave here. Uh, it is tonal, 
uh, it is it is it is based on classical and romantic and 20th century models. Uh, it is not hardcore, it is not 12 tone, it is not atonal. There is a single 12 tone row, which has a meaning. Uh, it refers to a coin, uh, a reward for whoever sees, uh, and it glistens like that. That's all, 12, one 12 note, 12 tone note, that's all. This is music that is listenable, that is deep, and that will catch you immediately. I use the word accessible in a good manner, but those who oppose J.K. use accessible in a derogatory or a contemptuous manner. Uh, you can see where I stand on this issue. Uh, this is music that I believe, and that's one of the reasons we're producing it, I believe that you will respond uh, to in a very positive manner. Um, what are, so I would like to speak also about the influences on the environment of Jake Heggie and the environment of this opera because uh, you hear the word derivative a lot as an insult. Um, now, my point of view that classical music has always been derivative. In fact, I'll go, be, I'll go beyond that. Derivative, everything in the world is derivative. If anybody here believes they created the wheel or created the universe, will you kindly stand up? Everything came from something, and so music has done the same. The idea that one can create a musical language out of nothing is nonsense. Even those great, great creative minds, the greatest creative minds, uh, uh, who made something up that wasn't there, Wagner, uh, Berlioz, Mahler, uh, they still were taking it from somewhere. Uh, so I reject that criticism. I also think it's unfair to say, well, you know, that sounds like X, or that sounds like Y. Well, well, of course it does. If you listen to if you listen to Mozart, it sounds like Haydn because that was the language. If you listen to early Beethoven, it sounds like Mozart uh, because that was the language, uh, and so on. So this goes through the whole Romantic, and it goes through the it goes through the 20th century, sometimes to a lesser degree, but uh, that's just the natural course. The first association I have with these with this opera and his music is Benjamin Britten. And I think Jake Heggie knows that, and I think he worked very hard to make sure that that overwhelming, uh, overwhelming presence of this 20th century giant, and especially in opera, uh, wasn't too strong. Um, however, it is strong, it's there. There are two clear relationships. One is Billy Budd. Billy Budd, which you say, how many of you saw Billy Budd here? Okay. Uh, it's the same, it's a boat. You're gonna be on a boat the whole night. Uh, it's Herman Melville, it's the same. It is a deep, it is a deep and impressive uh, psychological s story about society, about justice and injustice. You're going to see some of the same tonight. Britain, a genius, created models that are very useful, and Jake Heggie has been has used them intelligently, but in his own voice. Peter Grimes, however, is more important than how many have seen Peter Grimes? We haven't done it recently. We really ought to. Uh, Peter Grimes, as you know, this, this, this individual against his society, that society against him, who fights, uh, he fights his life as a fisherman. Uh, there's a, you're going to see a lot of parallels, um, it, for instance, in the confrontation between Peter Grimes, you'll remember Peter Grimes, and Captain Ahab on the one side, and Starbuck, and Balstro, the old captain who was trying to help Balstrode uh, tries to help Peter Grimes understand his dilemma. Starbuck tries to help Ahab understand his dilemma, but how to put it in a, in a, in a moral context that, is, that allows him to be a great captain and not a user of his 
forces. Uh, of course, they both fail in the end. Uh, you'll, hear ref you'll hear background, Bernstein, Copeland, Sondheim, Adams, some minimalism. This is American music, 100% American music. Uh, I don't know if it, I think it was maybe uh, Leonard Foley, the other director, or maybe Gene Shea, said, you know, most operas are written by dead Europeans. Uh, I resent that uh, because most operas are great and it doesn't matter who wrote them. But you'll see hidden in that statement is an idea, well, if it's not contemporary, it's not valuable. If it's not us, America, it's not valuable. That, of course, is in total contradiction to all of us, I believe, who are in this room uh, because classical literature, art, music is all about art that has uh, surpassed its, uh, its origins has surpassed its time, has lived through the ages, has lived through every culture. So I don't really like that statement, but the part of it that is accurate is that this is very much uh, an American opera. Now, um, if you want to complain about derivatives, I say Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, they all derive from one another. The three bel canto uh, composers, Bellini, Donizetti, uh, Rossini, oh, I should say Rossini first, and then Bellini and Donizetti, led directly to Verdi. Verdi's derivative? Yes. And he would, he would, he would have admit, admitted, not admitted, it wasn't a crime, it was expected. You took the language, then he transformed it, being the great genius he was, he transformed it into something, something else, and something that went way beyond that. Um, I think of um, Brahms, of course, as coming after Beethoven. The three great creative geniuses of the 19th century and the early 20th, Wagner, Berlioz, Mahler. Brahms and Wagner, Wagnerites hated each other. And so the next generation, Schoenberg, Berg, Zimlinski, Schraker, took from them, but they tried to resolve the contradiction. So it's normal. If Jake Heggie has written some music that you can say, huh, sounds like Bernstein, or hmm, sounds like Copeland, correct, that's right. And what's wrong with it? Uh, he's been accused of being too tonal. My question is, for whom? Uh, there is a place in the world for all as long as the work succeeds on the terms it adopts, its own terms. In other words, this is not a rant against uh, 12 tone music. This is not a rant against atonal music, not at all. I love a lot of it, but it is a rant against orthodoxy, and it is an, a rant about the, the damage that is done by uh, excessively protecting schools and not individual artists and art. Um, why is opera not literature? Uh, think of some of the operas. You've seen Eugene Onegin in recent years. You've seen Pigdam, that's Pushkin. The, the Onegin and Pigdam of Tchaikovsky are not in the spirit of Pushkin. He has taken what he needed and created something that is quintessentially Tchaikovsky. In other words, much more emotional, sentimental than the rather cool distance writing of Pushkin. Uh, Macbeth, Otello, Falstaff, Verdi's three great operas. Well, the complaints, well, it's not as good as Shakespeare. Well, that's arguable because a lot of people think Falstaff is better. I think a lot of people think Otello, the opera, is just as great as Othello the play. And I think that most will say, yeah, okay, Macbeth is better the play, but it's still a great opera. And the only thing that matters is it's a great opera. Macbeth is a great opera. If you don't know Macbeth of Shakespeare, you have nothing with which to compare it. And that's all that's important. It's on its own terms. Uh, it was just as true of Billy Budd, of Moby Dick. Uh, it's what, what can you put on the stage? The other criticism, anybody, how dare you take this great piece of literature, 700 pages, and you have the chutzpah, 
that's an Eastern word too, <laughs> to try to reduce it to a simple story. But that's what you do. You have no choice. If you're going to choose to do, make an opera, it's only presentable on stage in a shorter time, time, time span. I mean, we don't have the time to stay here for a month while we go through every line of Billy Budd. Of, uh, of, uh, well, even Billy Budd, we wouldn't be able to do it, but, but certainly not Moby Dick. Uh, you can't set philosophy or drive facts to um, music. You can't set mathematics or, or studies in logic, algorithms. They don't transfer well into music. What transmits itself well? Emotions, dramatic situations, dramatic confrontations, passions, uh, uh, dealing with nature's forces. You've got all of that tonight. You're going to see all of that tonight. Now, the sea as a metaphor is very important. And that's why that one song, Lost, Lost in the Heart of the Sea, has also become central. Um, it's about, the sea is a great metaphor because, it, first of all, it's colorful. Anytime you're on a boat, you're going to be able to show storms or battles or something like that. And um, here comes my iPod. Let's see if it's not too loud when I put it on. Uh, the sea as a metaphor has been used. The tumultuous state of human relations, that's what I call it. And here's an early example. I think maybe you'll recognize this. Another opera we've done. There the Flying Dutchman, right? He is a Captain Ahab type character. He is trying, he's been on this ship for 200 years. He wants to, one thing, one thing, find the faithful woman. Okay? Uh, that's a, a first example. Here's another one of a sea opera. It's a storm. It's Peter Grimes. Wagner was on a ship once that had, was almost shipwrecked by a storm between Riga and the mainland, and he never forgot it. And that is where a lot of the inspiration for the Flying Dutchman started. Britain grew up next to the sea, and he lived his entire life on the coast next to the sea. Water, sea, permeates all of his works. There's a storm, here's dawn. Britain was able to set the various moods of the, of the sea, just as, uh, just as lay, uh, earlier Debussy wrote a symphonic poem, La Mer, which isn't really about the sea. It's about what? Human passions and emotions. In fact, in a certain way, it's uh, another attempt to recast Tristan and Isolde, because every composer around then was obsessed with Tri Tristan, trying to write their own Tristan. Um, but it, it is a perfect metaphor for all those. So, Here's a few little quotes from Billy Budd you might remember. You think the character of sea life, the hierarchy, the orders, the military-like discipline. That's Britain. You're going to hear, you're going to hear shades of that um, in Jake Heggie's. Praise for the captain. That's Captain Veer in Billy Budd. Captain Ahab in, uh, in Moby Dick. This soft choir, which they sing a song, blow her away, blow her to high-low. That is going to be the model for the soft chorus singing Lost in the Heart of the Sea. Final Billy Bud, Decahorn. You get the picture. Here's the prelude to Moby Dick. In three minutes, he will establish the universe. Two-note motive. 
Bum, bum. Very simple. But you can see the way it's written. You can see up and down, nothing in the middle. Sky, water, a horizon that doesn't end. You see infinity. And that is a four chord motive that will unite the entire opera. Now, for you, those of you who studied music, you don't, don't worry if you have an E minor. You remember minor is sad and major is happy. All right, we hear minor, it already touches our hearts. E minor, C minor, C major. Oh, now it's happy? No, it goes back to E minor. That chord progression of four simple chords is going to unite, is going to be the paste of the entire opera. Now, I, I asked Jake Keggy, I said, you know, uh, you know, I'm a Wagnerite. I like light, light motifs. Um, do you have associations or names for your motives? Now, he, didn't, he didn't answer the question. He wrote back to me and said, I love motives. So I guess he doesn't want to tell us if he does. But nevertheless, I can't help myself. I, I start having associations. By the way, the, the term leitmotiv, that's a light leading motif. You remember we did that when we did the ring? Wagner didn't use that term. And, and the famous chart of leitmotifs was created after by somebody else. So Wagner was probably thinking just as intuitively as, as Jake. But um, that, those, those chords are very important. We're going to continue on in the... That's going to become important. Of this, of the sea, of the now underneath you're going to hear which you already heard a suggestion, but now it's going to be distorted. It's in a strange rhythm, which goes. Now you hear those two notes I'm pounding here? They are out of the pattern. Three notes: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Why? This will be a motive, and it is the motive of Captain Ahab. One, two, three, four, five, six, boop, boop. That is his wooden lake. Because it's a distorted walk, we've got a distorted motive. Now, it's very subtle at the beginning. See? The sky, the horizon. Greenhorn, who's really Melville, it may be associated with the goodness on the ship. Those characters we've already met. Cut you off in midstream, and we're going to see the first character is Quaquad, and he is praying. 
a, an authentic prayer which has been found in an old Polynesian prayer book. He does his daily prayers, and that's what this is. You will also hear, that's Captain Ahab walking around the ship. His entire prayer is written in 8-8. The whole first scene. What is that telling us? That the, uh, the overwhelming presence of Captain Ahab everywhere. You're going to hear a lot of that. Now then we... Uh, next... <laughs> The captain's bell, every time Captain Ahab wants the troops to come out, go, they're, going to, they're going to have confrontations, they're going to have confrontations. He says, enemy ship, he says, there's a, there are going to be storms, there's going to be sightings of whales, uh, not until the end, of course, Moby Dick is only going to present himself at the end, but we're going to have all of those very exciting pictures of life on board. That becomes a sort of military-like theme. Okay. Listen to the flute. This is the 12-tone row. It's going to repeat itself over and over again. You'll even be able to whistle this by the time you leave tonight. Captain Ahab is tempting the crew with a doubloon, which is worth $16 for whoever sights Moby Dick. And so that magic of the 12 tone, the mystery of the 12 tone, of course, about the mystery, the power of money. And many people see the see Moby, I wouldn't attempt to encapsulize Melville and Moby Dick, but many see this as a, as a metaphor for America in its, in its complexity, but the 19th century America, that's the era of the robber barons where money was everything. Now, I'm not sure we've come a long way on that score, <laughs> but th this puts it right out there. Keep listening to the flute and the, and the solo violinist. They're going to play that melody, well, that 12-tone melody many times. It's a white whale, I say. Here it is, on the violin, you hear it? Captain Ahab's telling everybody you're looking for a white whale. White whale. In your eyes, man. Harps like Debussy, water, there's water everywhere. If you see Bobby Dick, you sing out. Bernstein. This work is imbued with rhythm all the way through. You know, I got rhythm. That's it. That's Gershwin, of course, but yes, America has rhythm, and that's been one of the, the uh, strengths of our music making and also our composition. More water, confrontation. We'll see the waves. Another motive, it's a fanfare. I haven't found a name for it. Maybe you'll find one by the end of the evening. It, everything's fair. You can, anything, any association you have is legitimate. <laughs> 
storm. There she blows, the famous line, they have seen a whale. And they all get into action. And you'll feel the excitement of what happens on those boats when they saw a whale. Cruel, yes. Immoral, yes. All of those things. But nevertheless, it was an, it was an addictive act as well, as hunting has always been. I'm against all hunting, personally. But a lot of a lot of the history of western civilization and all civilizations is based on the excitement of the hunt more waves this is the ship when it's waking up What do people do when they're on ship and bored? There's no television, no computers. They dance, they sing, they make, make, make up some way to enjoy themselves and have fun. This, is, this quote is very Britain-esque. Here's the tambourine, that's Pip's tambourine, very important. Here's the dance. His voice, the tavern jig. The jig. Are you bored? Then is this all a bit queer? An Irish jig. Many of those whalers were of Irish descent. You'll hear a motive that sounds like the New World Symphony. Don't be shocked. It becomes part of the fabric of this particular scene. Now, this is when Pip goes overboard, and you hear Pip, and you're going to see Pip swimming. Spectacular production. You see her. You hear the, are those birds? Is that the panic that Pip is feeling? And so the, the choir sings. Lost in the heart of the sea. Rolling in white capped waves, rising and falling, casting, falling to shadows. That's what Pip is going through, and that's what that is their metaphoric destiny. Remember that, and you'll be singing that also by the end of the night. And Greenhorn will recapitulate this. Now, Captain Ahab is sleeping. He has earlier almost shot Starbuck to death for insubordination. And Star Starbuck has his big Hamlet moment. Is it moral to kill this man? Is it permissible to murder a potential murderer? But we see Captain Ahab having a nightmare. And from one moment, he becomes human again. A nightmare similar to all we would have. And that's how the act, first act closes. 
The first act is very long, the second act is short. So uh, I'll give you enough time to get to the restroom before we go to act one. Uh, it's going to finish with that. Oh, you don't have to leave right now, do you? <laughs> I'll never say that again. This is a prelude to act two where all the motives are brought together and played together. Okay? And at the end of the opera, You know, somehow I w I'm past it and I don't know how I did that. There is a big moment where everybody says, Death to Moby Dick. Ra -ra -di -da -da -ba -ba. There's your 8 8. Death to Moby Dick. Ahab uh, works the crowd. He gets them all fired up to find, find Death to Moby Dick. Bram, ba -ba -ba -ba. That's two parts. The answer is. Da -da -di -da -da -ba -ba. And they repeat it over and over and over again. It's, it's like the fascist, uh, uh, fascist parades and manifestations um, in, in Germany and, and Italy in, the, in, in, that, in, the, in, the, in the mid 20th century. Um, I missed, somehow I missed that one. Another storm. Not unlike Peter Grimes. That's Peter Grimes. Here's Captain Gardner. You will not see him. He's calling to Captain Ahab. He's going to say, have you seen my son? Lost in the sea. That's the motive, lost in the sea. Who is it, sir? Through the mist, you can almost feel the mist and see well, the conversation, you know how it goes. I've lost my son. Have you seen the white whale? Have you seen my son? Have you seen the white whale? Okay. Quiet. There are eerie silences, eerie moments of quiet, as opposed to the storm music. Now the big moment. There. The appearance of Moby Dick. Ahab, almost unable to speak. There she blows. Starbuck, it cannot be. The crew comes in. It's a moment of triumph for them. This is their great battle. They are all going to battle. Ahab has won their he has turned them into warriors. They're gonna kill they're gonna kill they're gonna kill that white whale for Captain Ahab. But Captain Ahab though wants to do it himself. Here's his battle. Here is his struggle. Looking, 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 looking. Tenor. You know, Jay Hunter Morris sang the Flying Dutchman here, but in the Flying Dutchman, he sang Siegmund Forrest a while ago. He sang Siegfried at the Met. That's the type of voice. He's almost a hero. He's a hero in his own mind. I will stand 
That's the struggle with the whale. I spit my last breath at thee. Now the whale will appear. It's coming soon. There we go. I'm not going to tell you who wins. You know. Then there's an epilogue. Gardner from the other ship, Captain Gardner says, who are you, young man? What is your name? with a totally different meaning. The same mu music has a totally different reality now. We've just witnessed something that's like the end of Goethe Demerung, where the whale destroys the ship and everybody on it. Just as Goethe Demerung, the world is destroyed through fire and then water. Listen to these mysterious chords. Solo violin going up to the top. Eternity. The first word that Ahab says is infinity. And we're going to feel infinity at the end of all this. Now, if you like this tonight, tell all your friends to come. Because there's a lot of people that are afraid to come. Tell them all to come. If you like it, come back. And as I say every time, if you don't like it, come back because you'll get it the second time. Thank you so much and enjoy yourselves tonight.